Welcome to Bonus Features. Some might call it supplemental material, but it's so much more than that. It's the portion of Secret Handshake where we talk to writers, directors, actors, critics, academics, and flat-out film freaks about the movies they love to get a deeper perspective. I'm your host, Jacob Knight, and joining us this week is Matthew Robbins. Mr. Robbins is the director of The Legend of Billie Jean, arguably the greatest teen movie of all time, and our pick for this week's spine number inclusion in the Secret Handshake Collection. Now, Matthew has a long history in Hollywood, dating back to the USC film brat days where he palled around with Steven Spielberg, George Lucas. He knew the legend of John Milius, and he's just full of great stories from that time period, which stretch out to his great career, including writing Sugarland Express for Spielberg, directing Dragon Slayer, and then ultimately, where the bulk of our conversation comes from, directing The Legend of Billie Jean with Helen Slater and Christian Slater, Keith Gordon, and one of the greatest rock scores of all time. But enough from me. Here's Matthew Robbins talking about The Legend of Billie Jean. But um, I wanted to talk to you about The Legend of Billie Jean and really kind of your early career uh, in general, but Billie Jean in particular because uh, it was the pick of the week for our podcast. And it's frankly one of my favorite films of all time. It's a movie that I've probably seen 20 or so times. Oh, my gosh. I'm uh, Well, thank you. It's very nice to hear. I, uh, in anticipation of talking to you, I hope I haven't lost it. Oh, damn. going to have to go back and find it. I'm going to send you something that was sent to me a few years ago about the movie. Uh, okay. Hang on one second, Jacob. Damn, I screwed up your history. Dun, 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 dun. Well, oh, here it is. No, I'm going to have to do it separately. It's not, it's not it. Um, the fact that you have seen it so often and that it holds such a uh, important place in some kind of maybe nostalgic. Uh, hold, hold on a second. There's a cat at my door. No problem. Um, it's just it just um, it's really fascinating to me that um, if this article that I am going to find for you is to be believed, there is a certain following for that movie among feminists. Yes. And that was part of the the questions that I had for you too, uh, because I'm actually, I'm talking to you and then I'm talking to uh, Mark uh, later tonight, the screenwriter, um, to kind of get an idea of just where this movie came from in particular, uh, because I didn't, you, you mentioned nostalgia, but like, I didn't see this movie until my early thirties. Oh, they actually programmed it here in Austin at the uh, Ritz downtown. And I, I saw it on an old 35 millimeter print and it was a total, where has this been my entire life uh, experience? <laughs> and then I, you know, I sought it out on, I believe Sony put out like a, a kind of janky DVD. And then I bought a Blu-ray once, once it came out for there, but it was, you know, the whole idea of this podcast is secret handshake movies, and it became a secret handshake movie because everybody who I was friends with and who I knew loved movies, I was like, well, you have to see this. Like, there's nothing, there's no, it, in particular, teen movie, but 80s movie that felt quite like it. Well, um, the article that I will find was, I think, written in 2000. 10 or even earlier by a feminist and the lead of the article is um, my favorite movie by far is The Legend of Billie Jean and it's a really sort of serious attempt to grapple with its issues in, about about uh, sexuality, feminism, young people, classism, you know, trailer trash and privilege, da 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 da, -da. and uh, so, and I may, I don't know how old she was when she saw it. I have no idea if she was. A friend of mine became aware of it and sent it to me. But this was a few years ago, and I hadn't heard a peep about this really at all uh, ever since. But I'm glad you're going to talk to um, uh, uh, Connor and Rosenthal. Uh, they, it was their screenplay that was uh, first sent to me that uh, had all that promise. Yeah. But because this was. Uh to kind of jump backwards in time a little bit, this was the first 
movie that you made without uh, your writing partner at the time, correct? With uh, uh, Hal, yeah, Hal Barwood, because you he had written Corvette Summer with you, another mm-hmm. movie that I quite like, and then Dragon Slayer as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So can you talk a little bit just to start? Um, because I feel like you're one of the unsung heroes of, of the new Hollywood era, particularly in like terms of screenwriters, because you helped even uh, be the architect of George, one of George Lucas's first or most notable short movies with THX 1138 uh, 4EB. Um, and I wondered if you could tell me that story a little bit. It's because like you, you came up with the idea at a party together. Not exactly. Not, I, you know, I just, I, I, I can't help but say it's, the internet is amazing. <laughs> just, <laughs> these truly obscure things that were more or less half forgotten by us now. Uh, uh, but I, I have been asked about this recently enough to know, uh, to have recalled, uh, oh, no, 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 it was not quite that way. Um, George, um, uh, was always very shrewd uh, at film school about the resources available. Sure. Cameras and crews. And in those days, uh, the um, U.S. military was sending uh, people for um, training in the making of industrial film, you know, training films, uh, military productions for the training of soldiers. And so there was funding for them, and they had access to equipment and manpower. And George saw that and, you know, aha, aha, there's a way to, you know, because you could never, you know, everybody is competing for the limited number of cameras and raw stock and all the rest of it. And at that party, that there was a party, it's so funny, it was our animation professor had a party and a lot of us were there. And um, he, he um, we, we had become friends right away. Um, I, I, Walter Murch and I went to USC having graduated from Johns Hopkins and, and Murch and I very quickly became very friendly with a lot of these other guys, especially George. And um, George said, I want to do this film. I have this thing and I want to do it. And he described it to me. He kind of pitched the whole thing to me. I said, oh, that's great. And then I went and I wrote it up. I just wrote it up on onion skin on my Olivetti. <laughs> Yeah. And uh, it was not, I didn't even know really what a screenplay was. There's no dialogue. It was just description. Right. And um, he took that and uh, he made the short, which went on to win all kinds of prizes. Uh, Spielberg has talked about when he saw it, he was at Long Beach State. In other words, it was a very important thing in the annals of student filmmaking in those days. There was a whole kind of um, constellation of uh, mutual interests and, um, years and years and years later, uh, when I moved with my wife from L.A. to here in Northern California, we cleaned out the basement in L.A. And to our astonishment, I found those pages that I had typed up for George. Wow. And I gave them to him. <laughs> he couldn't believe it. So they are now in the Lucasfilm archives. <laughs> But it was not my idea. It was George's, you know, uh, uh, anti-utopian, you know, dystopian view of tyranny, uh, which he had also celebrated in another one of his shorts. Uh, anyway, that's as brief an answer as I can give you on, on that thing. Oh, and about how Hal, Hal was a star at uh, USC Cinema when I got there. He was a year older and he'd been there. He was a graduate of... Um, Brown University, and he was a star in animation. He had was a prize-winning animator, and um, <coughs> he and I um, fell into this uh, partnership, um, talking all the time about movies. And um, what happened was um, uh, one of the agencies there was a, a international creative management about which we as students knew nothing. <laughs> they assigned um, a young agent, Jeff Berg, to see if he couldn't reach out to these upcoming film graduates, these, you know, us at UCLA and USC and NYU 
yeah, maybe there's something going on there. And here was this guy who was our age. And the first one who attracted his attention was John Milius. Yeah, that's what I was going to say is he, I've heard the stories about basically Berg uh, recruiting John Milius. Well, also, you, you never know what to believe with the John Milius stories because they become bigger than life itself. Yes. <laughs> John was, in fact, the first one who had an agent. Yeah. And the rest of us couldn't believe it. It was like, I mean, the whole, in those days, uh, there was a fixation on the capital E establishment. And the idea of an agent was such a prominent accessory to that concept in Hollywood, agents. <laughs> it was like uh, the first time I ever saw a copy of Variety magazine. that It was real that it wasn't a prop in a black and white movie from the 30s about Hollywood, you know, with fast talking you know, backstage people reading Variety. I just couldn't believe it. I was a traditional East Coast academic family and all the rest of your very, very different origins. But uh, John signed with Jeff Berg and the very next week, practically, Jeff Berg reached out uh, to me and to Hal. What do you guys want to do? What do you want to do? What do you want to do? And we had been talking to Francis. Francis was at UCLA, but we were all part of that same community. And Francis had made a deal with Warner Brothers Seven Arts, as it was known back then, you know, for us young filmmakers. And one of these deals was going to be for Hal and me to write our first movie. And that was just in the works. And Jeff said, that's great. I'll negotiate the deal for you and I'm going to be your agent. We did it fine. We didn't know what it meant. <laughs> it had no reality to us whatsoever. But that's how that happened. And uh, Hal and I um, taught ourselves uh, really how to write. We wrote very, very quickly. And uh, we had taken a screenwriting class with Erwin Blacker, who who John uh, I, I still, I think, admires far more than the rest of us did. But Blacker was a character who taught screenwriting at USC. But Hal and I sort of taught ourselves by doing, reading and doing, reading and doing, churning through all these scripts. And um, then um, finally, um, uh, we were starting to get development deals through this Jeff Berg thing and nothing was getting, and Stephen came along with this news clipping for the Sugarland Express. It was just a paragraph of this odd thing that had actually happened in, in Harris County. <laughs> just uh, where in Texas are you? are in Austin. Well, this is up in Houston and, and this and this environs. And uh, that um, the enthusiasm that Stephen showed and uh, one of the executives at uh, Universal who was a little bit beguiled by these young people, Jennings Line, he sent us to Texas. We researched it and came back and Hal and I, um, wrote that, uh, and that was the first one, uh, I think it was our seventh screenplay, but that was the first one that got made. Yeah, because that's, everything I've read about you is that was kind of like the early part of your career was just churning these screenplays out and being, it sounds like quite successful, frankly. I mean, you wrote Sugarland Express, pretty good start, uh, <laughs> but like, how did uh, Corvette Summer become the movie that you settled on to actually direct because let's say it's an odd movie it's a lot of fun but it is an odd movie um how odd i'm, just, I'm curious tell me well i just this whole idea of like you know you have mark hamill you have annie potts and just this there's a, a sexuality to it it kind of like billy jean in the way that like i watch it and it's not you go in expecting one film, but you get something totally different. And that's what I always wondered is if I ever got to ask you the question, like Corvette Summer, how does that kick off one's directing career? Like, where did you come to or how did you come to it, I guess? Well, well Hal and I um, uh, were very, very busy. Uh, we got a lot of writing jobs. It was very exciting. We again, I'm speaking more for myself now rather than my colleagues at UC. It was sort of a juvenile, perpetually juvenile naivete and misunderstanding as to what it was like to have a career. I never really conceptualized it as such. I was too busy having a great time, sure. uh, like, like a kid in a way. And um, it, it, I had made student films. I had written and directed student films, which had won, been successful at USC. They had won some prizes and gotten some attention. And um, uh, the idea of directing was always lurking. I mean, 
in those days, writing, directing, they went together. Uh, and I was intending the, to become a director somehow, somewhere. I hadn't really made any plans about it. I didn't have, hadn't set that one out as a goal until Hal and I got a big job, a prominent job in Hollywood, writing this movie, MacArthur. Francis had written Patton, and the same um, producer, uh, General Frank McCarthy. Can you hold on a second, Jacob? I'm really sure. sorry. Hey, Janet. I got it. <laughs> You've got a wild kitty. Now, this cat is not allowed out. It's been killing all the birds. We live out in the forest, and it's just a disgrace. Can you get him out of here? I cannot take it. I'm doing this chat online, and the cat is scratching and meowing and driving me nuts. <laughs> I'm sorry, Jacob, but we've buried half a dozen songbirds in the last five days. It's like this cat has gone into full panther mode, and it's driving my wife and me crazy. It's actually our grand cat. Oh, wow. Okay, so um, we uh, had a lot of difficulties on that movie. We wrote what I think is a really terrific script to this day. I'm very proud of it. It took a long time. I had to do a lot of research. Serious project. I mean, ah, suddenly the long pants were on. This is, you know, MacArthur, American history. And... Um, the movie was fell so far short of what we had expected. Uh, it was a huge lesson for me. Uh, I, I, it was the first time I really got a slap across the face as to because Stephen did a great job with Sugarland Express, and we, I mean, you get the idea. But this was different, and and, and um, so we had cooked up this story of Corvette Summer, and and so we just Hal and I decided we are not going to sell this unless we make the movie. It was just kind of a reaction to what happened on, on um, MacArthur. It was a very, it was truly bitter experience. Yeah. And um, I mean, our screenplay was very much the voice of our generation. There was a lot of subversive stuff. I mean, MacArthur was, uh, you know, proto-fascist. He was fantastically talented and charismatic beyond belief and responsible for some substantial victories in the war. But he was also harbored all kinds of really horrifying, you know, views that made your hair stand on And we celebrated that too. And the director wasn't interested and Gregory Peck wasn't interested, thought it was demeaning to put this stuff on. And so all this stuff, and they brought another writer on at the end and uh, he who carved out at their behest all the, to us, really wonderful stuff and yet that other writer was not credited the, the writers guild didn't deem a contribution sufficient your congratulations matthew and how you have sole credit on this, this thing so you can understand the context yeah and that's why uh how i uh did um uh corvette summer and oh. um it was uh, one of the, my proudest things about that movie, of which I am still very fond, is uh, that Annie Potts, I discovered Annie Potts, big deal. And, and um, it, was a, it was a fun show. Mark had had his, his car accident, um, and um, it wasn't easy to shoot him uh, after he was very badly uh, injured. In, 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 so this is pretty well-known stuff. But uh, I think he's an extremely talented actor. Really, yeah. really versatile. And and in view of all the post-Star Wars phenomenon, all the rest of this, you know, decades of history, I'm so happy to see he's got this big online presence, Mark, politically and otherwise. I just think that's wonderful. But in terms of, and I have a tremendous respect for Harrison, who I know only slightly. And Harrison had this sort of major leading man career and all the rest of it. But to my mind, Mark, in terms of range, and and mutability and all the rest of it is um, is is a more interesting talent and um, I'm uh, you know he's he's I'm not, I don't have to worry about Mark it's just this odd thing about stardom and uh, yeah right. well uh, thank you for discovering Annie Potts because that you minted one of uh, my earliest crushes as well <laughs> with that movie because I <laughs> utterly fell in love with her. Um, but how did you jump from that to uh, Dragon Slayer? Uh, 
how was that? Um, my, Hal, Hal Barwood uh, was a passionate reader of Tolkien. Okay. And I was aware of Tolkien, but had never, you know, gone. And, and he made me do it, and I fell in the spell. I thought it was wonderful. And so, um, and, and he, Hal has always had a strong interest in, in fantasy. And uh, so we cobbled together that uh, story. And um, it so happened that uh, the phenomena of Dungeons and Dragons had gone crazy. Mm-hmm. So we didn't um, play into that knowingly. Uh, we didn't play Dungeons and Dragons, but uh, it turns out that um, there were two studios that had their ear to the ground about that. One was Disney and one was Paramount. And when uh, Michael Eisner, then head of Disney, with Jeff Katzenberg as sort of VP or whatever it was, they read Dragon Slayer. They were very, very interested. They had been unsuccessfully trying to develop their own dragon movie. Okay. And so we went called in for a meeting, and they were very, very interested. But they had learned that Paramount was in very much the same situation. And so they made a co-production deal on our picture. And... Um, Paramount distributed the film on the U.S. and Disney uh, in the rest of the world. Okay. Yeah, I just wondered because it's when you look at your filmography, you see Dragon Slayer, especially that early, and you're like, that's not like Corvette Summer, it's not like Billie Jean, but like, it just felt so out there and it's a great movie it's another one that like i feel like deserves a huge cult following but like it just i i always wondered like why that movie there you know um, well we we uh hal and matthew were we had very very wide-ranging interests and we we're basically even to this day i'm still in touch with him he lives in oregon he's uh retired from the film business. He went, became uh, uh, very important in the um, gaming. Uh, he, he worked at LucasArts uh, for George's gaming company. Okay. Anyway, um, very enthusiastic about a lot of different genres. You know, passionate, excitable fans. And they, oh, let's do this, let's do that. That's true to this day. I mean, it's uh, when we talk, <clears throat> it's have you seen this, all these streaming tastes? We have all these different genres. So, it was just out of um, um, that kind of a, um, voracious uh, curiosity. Let's try this on. It's like you know, going into a costume shop, <laughs> yeah, and trying on these genres and and and, but always with the idea of what what can we do that you know that's that's original here. Is there what you know what can we do so that it's not predictable? All those traditional questions that you have to ask yourself when you're writing something you know how do you how do you avoid the cliches but no that's as best an answer as i think i can give you on that no totally i mean i also but then you consider like your work with guillermo you know later in life and it's like oh yeah now it makes sense you know <laughs> because you well you see somebody like guillermo making a dragon slayer like because he's such a uh, voracious uh, consumer of all things fantasy fantastical and dark Let's say. Yeah, when we met, it was because um, uh, the Sundance Institute, which had had me as an advisor, um, they uh, sent a number of us uh, veteran writers. This is in the 90s, so I was still a working writer and, and you know very active uh, uh, to Mexico, to Guadalajara, where they did a workshop for um, emerging film talent in Mexico, and by sheer chance, he was assigned to me. Mm. Or maybe wow. he asked for it, because and he was a huge Dragon Slayer fan. He was like, ah. Oh. <laughs> we, we started talking and basically never stopped. And uh, uh, things were moose, were moose. He was already accelerating. The, the, the light had turned green for Guillermo at the drag script. And he was getting all kinds of offers to do things because of Kronos. Right. 
And um, he was, uh, I remember vividly, he was being offered one of those Hellraiser movies with a pinhead guy and, you know, you know number six or something. And I said, no, 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 don't do that. Wow, Mateo, why not? You know, and I said, Isn't, you know, you don't want to do a sequel. And so we just kept in touch, very much in touch. And things, you know, we, 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 we were very big overlapping sensibility. Uh, because I, as a kid, I was fascinated and terrified of, of uh, horror movies, scary movies. Yeah. Uh, I, 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 big overlap there. He was much further into it uh, in his, um, I mean, I, I read comic books as a kid, but he collects them like a, a fiend. Um, well, he and, has that massive, almost like self-curated archive of all things like Lee, Lee house yeah yeah that's an astonishing place he's got the dining room looks like it's got the wallpaper from uh, uh disney uh, the um, um haunted mansion <laughs> which we also wrote for disney we wrote our we wrote a script for disney that he was meant to direct on the haunted mansion it's got the candlesticks and all the rest of it no um that that it was the he he respected my other films, but it was Dragon Slayer for him was like a unforgettable peak experience. Now you have a four year gap then from Dragon Slayer to Billy Jean. So how how did Billy Jean come to you? Because again, this is your first movie I think up to this point without Hal Barwood. Like mm-hmm. how did uh, Mark Rosenthal's script come to you? How did like how did you basically land on this movie uh you know i don't remember the details except that um there was a screenplay that was sent to me to direct hal wasn't part of it hal was was about to direct his film for 20th century fox we wrote one for him um a warning sign and uh we were going to uh without officially splitting up as a partnership, we were going to try this new mode of, you know, existence where we both develop things for ourselves and come back together, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and um, I liked uh, that screenplay and thought it had a lot of potential. And um, I showed it to my, my mentor, then as now, believe it or not, because he's still with us, is Walter Bernstein. Okay. Wow. Jeez. And he, he loved Billie Jean, too. He thought it really had a lot of promise, too. And I went to the studio and I said, I would like to do it, but I'd like to re- revise what's here, partnering with Walter Bernstein. who was. And when they said yes, that's what did it. Not that I didn't like the screenplay. I, I had not met. I, I think. East Coast, the, the writers, um, I didn't know them. In fact, I don't think I met them until years later. In fact, I don't know that I've ever met Rosenthal. I certainly have met Connor over the years, haven't seen him for many years, and became okay. friends with, with Connor. Yeah. I, I'm sure they were very put out by the fact that they were just set aside by this, you know, <laughs> this unfeeling, headstrong director who just, you know, flicked them aside and brought Walter Bernstein on. And I think there's come some truth to that, actually. I and regret that that went down that way. But I was utterly, you know, hero worshiping uh, Walter Bernstein, and that he uh, would give it his blessing and come on board. And he had a lot of politics. A lot of the politics in this movie can be derived from him. Okay. Because. That's the other thing that that I think is the most remarkable bit about the movie and what we talk about in our main episode on the podcast a lot is the fact that you can watch Billie Jean and just say, this is a great piece of entertainment. This is a great teen movie. It's a great outlaw movie. It uh, looks terrific. Also, because you have Jeffrey Kimball shooting it, who would go on to, you know, work with Tony Scott. I mean, that guy's a visual genius. Um, So, like, there's all this stuff that superficially is amazing about the movie. But once you start digging in and watching how 
uh, myopically, it starts to get to its point. Like it narrows a little bit and a little bit and a little bit until you realize you're like, oh, this is what the movie's actually about. It's about a icon uh, almost giving birth to herself and then reckoning with the idea of like what that means to other people. Um, As somebody, you, who knows Sugarland Express. Yeah. This movie, in a way, is a first or second cousin to Sugarland Express. Yeah, very much so. Because of the Goldie Hawn phenomena of uh, the theme that emerged in Sugarland Express is that um, uh, celebrity wasn't far from notoriety. Right. And that's what happens to Billie Jean, is that she's got this noble cause and yet the exploitation that follows it, even though there is a noble element to it, and she stands for something ferocious and wonderful and, and late in the day and coming and all the rest of it. There is this fact of life, which is that her own followers are almost embarrassing in their idolization and naivete as to what she might mean. They're emotionally responding, but there is a, the news media, the intrusiveness of the of the public spectacle that we are so good at in this country. Uh, and so um, when I look back on it, I see uh, that, that connection uh, in terms of theme between the two movies. But what particularly um, uh, gets me even today about um, Walter's contribution um, is the um, emotional scenes, um, the intimate emotional scenes, uh, as she gets into the love affair with Lloyd, and 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 that th- those that that he he is the one who really was able to, you know, bring that focus down when necessary. The rhythm of the movie, you know, would change, and so and and ways to reveal what she's made of. He's just. Um, He's 101 now. We're still very much in touch. I speak to him once or twice a week. He lives in Manhattan. He's a little frail, but... Uh, um, he's, well, he's 101. Yeah. So. <laughs> I know. I, but I, 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 there's this perpetually denying the facts of life that I live in. I'm still very much his acolyte. And uh, when... I, I guess the, the point that I'm making is that... Um, the, he had a he had a big influence on 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 what we were given. The 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 as I recall, um, um, Connor and Rosenthal had a very very clever uh, idea that um, they had read about um, uh, what well, in those she was is still known in India as the Bandit Queen. Her name was uh, Devi D E V I something something Devi. And um, she became kind of like a Robin Hood in the in the in the Indian press, and she was pretty young. I don't remember the details about her, but they had found out about her, and they had the idea, good idea, of transporting that figurehead with all the charisma and the following, you know, into the USA. And so it was that foundation on which the movie is built. Okay. Yeah. Now, speaking of icons, how did you settle on Helen Slater? Like how I have to imagine that this was an incredibly difficult role to cast. It was. Yeah, it was. Um, We saw many and screen tested many, many um, actors, uh, actresses, they were called back then. Many of them. Jennifer Jason Lee and um, Diane oh. Diane Lane and I mean there were so many of them I'd have to go and but um, Diane Lane would have been interesting because you got you would have had her right at the time when she was making uh, Streets of Fire with Walter Hill and she had been in Rumble Fish for Francis Ford Coppola like that yeah. would have been an interesting bit of fantasy casting let's say yeah yeah um. But Helen Slater uh, had done Supergirl, uh, but she didn't really give an opportunity to, to show much in the way of uh, uh, in, in interior life, <laughs> to put it mildly. And so um, it was my job to work with her 
Okay. And, to, and to open up that part of her, um, I mean, she was, uh, um, you know, very, very beautiful. And I think there were fans out there who wanted to see more of her. And that maybe meant something to the studio. But um, uh, the, it was it was it was easy to um, find someone. We were very ambitious. It was a demanding part when you think about it. Oh, yeah. And and uh, she wasn't very experienced. That was the that was the question mark I think for the studio, but uh, they just thought she was so beautiful. We we're going to take this chance. You know, we can put her on the poster, and she's going to be a movie star like that. Um, the other problem was that it was very very hard to find her brother, the part of Christian Slater. Yeah, but, you got dual Slaters going. Well, the fact that they were unrelated uh, has been sort of uh, mostly uh, uh, the people then, even as now, assume that they really are brother and sister, which, of course, they are not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but he was 15 years old at the time, and he just had such great instincts and had such a um, – he was, he was uh, perfect casting. Yeah. Uh, for Banks, I was, I was, uh, I, I loved working uh, with him, and uh, the fact that the two of them, uh, I think, had a, they had, they came to an understanding. In fact, all the young people were kind of a gang. The the principals on that, they they got along very well. They were uh, a little foursome, uh, uh, fivesome, is it? You know, because there was Yardley Smith and oh my God. <laughs> yeah. But um, no, it was, it, and uh, the shoot was not easy. It was, it was um, um, on location and with a, frequently a lot of extras and a lot of pressure on me, a lot of pressure from the studio. Um, I have um, some very unfond memories, not about anything but with regard to the, the crew or the cast, but um, uh the situation uh, at TriStar and with Goober Peters was terrible, 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 terrible. In what way? They, um, I was under a lot of pressure to show more skin. Yeah. In the dailies. Which would have kind of been counterintuitive to the movie's entire feeling. Yes. Theme. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> so and and and, and um, it's just not who I am in terms of I just don't I just never even saw it that way um, in anticipation of talking to you today I looked at the first few minutes of the film and there's a thing where she takes off her shirt which I did because I was that was and I look at it like you why why you know, she's got her back to the camera. It means absolutely nothing. Wouldn't even get a second thought today. But in terms of the way I would think about movies, I was trying to fulfill some kind of obligation I felt I had to them. And it was really unpleasant. But the most it, the in the defense of that, though, not in the defense of the studio's mandate. Like watching it today, I feel like the skin and stuff it puts you as a viewer in a way that I, I enjoy in an uncomfortable position and where you're looking at this beautiful girl and then later have to reckon with how uh, she is exploited. And that kind of, uh, it makes you confront your own, not to get too academic or anything, but the way that you gaze at certain things in movies, particularly female bodies and stuff, because all of a sudden, she's on this poster that this crass asshole who essentially was going to, you know, uh, pay to her. Sound exactly like me back then. Yeah. <laughs> like sound, yes. No, no, and it's true. There were, you know, there she is in her bikini, and and and, and he, it, that is very much one of the engines that drives the the story along. There's no denying it. You don't have a movie without that. It's just that. It was being put to me in kind of a grotesque. You can just oh, imagine, sure. you know, how it was like to be. They were looking at dailies back in California. I was down in Texas. I'm getting these phone calls. Um, the producer was Rob Cohen, and um, he was very much pushing me to, you know, keep them happy, keep them happy, keep them happy. Come on, you know, it was like, you know, uh, it was. And then um, 
what eventually went down, which is one of the things about this movie that I cannot forget, although I wish I could, is um, uh, we were getting into the very, very last sequence of the film where um, um, the boy wearing her costume gets shot. Mm -hmm. This had been in the screenplay for months and was scheduled with multiple cameras and the, I mean, the whole, you can imagine what this is like dealing with this. And the radio station locally had invited people from the Corpus Christi area to come and be part of this Hollywood movie. So there were thousands of people coming to this movie event. And the word came down from TriStar that to shoot the boy. Wow. What do you think want you to do instead? What do you want me to do instead? And you have, <laughs> had, you have had this screenplay. You've been watching dailies. We are now in our last week of shooting. We've got the entire cast here for the climax of this movie. And you want me to tonight, you know, Friday night, we shoot on Monday, rewrite over the weekend. What, what, what? And I got a call from um, one of the... Um, uh, production executives, and I won't tell his name because I don't want to go too far in the but I will never forget this. He said, I've got the answer. I've talked about it with the uh, head of the studio. Love it. And here's what it's going to be. There's such, there, I, he, his exact words, he said, uh, there's a technology which has come into use and it's available to you. It's called the beanbag gun. A, like, so they wanted you to basically use a riot gun. Which wouldn't have made any sense either from that long of a distance. Yeah, it's it, so stupid. <laughs> I, 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 it was insane. Yeah. But it's a measure of the pressure. I had never encountered anything like it. Yeah, I'm sorry you had to go through that. But let's get back to great things. Uh, <laughs> Cheer me up. It's still. about... <laughs> Uh, tell me about working with one of my favorite actors who's gone on to be quite the filmmaker himself, uh, Keith Gordon. Because oh. you kind of got Keith Gordon right at the peak of, well, let's say his Keith Gordon-ness is because he'd <laughs> already played, you know, here's a guy who's essentially playing uh, major directors for a good part of his career because, you know, he's in all that jazz for Bob Fosse. He basically plays young Brian De Palma in like the autobiographical parts of Dress to Kill. Um, and like he's like he's worked with John Carpenter at this point on Christine. Like he's one of my favorite actors who just had this short burst of like amazing creativity on screen. And then again, went on to be quite the filmmaker himself. Like what was it working? What was it like working with him? It was it was wonderful, and I he he's super quick, super yeah. smart, and he radiates high IQ, and which is one of the, I think one of the tricks that he's got. That you look at him on screen, and you can see somebody who's who's thinking ahead just like you are. He anticipates. He's he's got his own special kind of charisma, and I'm I'm aware of the fact that he's become a very successful director. I think that's wonderful. I was not ever really in touch with him ever after. Okay. But I was very, very pleased, you know, to, to see that because he 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 understood everything, everything. Yeah, I didn't really have to explain. He would come up with ideas. He was fun, spontaneous, and he had that great energy, which is on screen. Now, what was it like uh, shooting? You kind of touched on it a little bit, but I, I did want to ask, since this is a podcast being recorded in Texas, what was it like shooting, you know, in Corpus Christi? in that whole, because uh, it adds such a texture. You capture what the beaches in Texas mm -hmm. feel like, is that it reminds me a lot of, I grew up, I'm an East Coast guy. I, I grew up in, you know, going to the New Jersey beaches and the Delaware beaches, but like Corpus Christi and stuff feels a lot like that to me. And I just wondered how you went about capturing that, that very specific texture well, a part of the answer you already mentioned is Jeff Kimball. Yeah. And we had a great team of hair and makeup. We had, we had, we wanted the heat. We wanted, you know, the, um, that atmosphere. And, uh, so all the set dressing, all, all the, 
But beyond that, I think the uh, other answer I could give you, and I don't really know quite if this is going to communicate it adequately, but I had been, I had never been to Texas prior to uh, our uh, trips with Stephen on um, Sugarland. And um, I spe- we spent uh, a couple of weeks on, on that one, riding around with the highway patrol and, and getting to know Texas. And I came away hugely impressed by um, the personalities we encountered. They were so much uh, more vivid than the, uh, the California um, personalities, which I had come to know after... Uh, I like you, an East Coast guy. I grew up uh, <clears throat> in uh, New York and Long Island, and then went to Hopkins. And um, to me, California was—I uh, just found to be, in terms of human personality, it, I, this is an unfair generalization, but that's the way I felt about it. Uh, comparatively bland place. Have a nice day. That was not true about Texas. We, uh, Hal and I, used to talk about this. We met so many unforgettable characters on the, those location scouts on, on Sugarland. And I brought the same expectations uh, to Corpus Christi of Texas. You know, I like the idea of being back there. And I like the idea that uh, people like Mr. Pyatt and his son are these, you know, the very out, larger than life characters who have plenty to say and plenty to demonstrate. Uh, outsize, if you well, I know it's a cliche, but I found there'd be quite a lot of truth in it. Yeah. So I, I um, um, whatever was going on, I don't know what else I can say, except that I'm glad that uh, for you who live there and managed to capture some of it. Yeah. I mean, and the, as you kind of hit on, too, is that shooting with Jeff Kimball has got to be one of those dreams come true, because that's his first, Billy Jean's first feature I believe he had shot a documentary before that, but then he went on to do obviously Top Gun and Jacob, look that up because I don't think that's true. I can't, I don't remember the order of his credits, but I'm, I don't think it was literally his first feature. Okay. I just wondered about that. Cause I, I always see it listed on his, on his resume as like the first. And I'm like, is that true? <laughs> like, no, he is a Texan. Great. Yeah. Well, yeah. That and, makes his, sense. His, his, and one of his great pals uh, wasn't a Texan, it was, but it was Mac Rebenack, Dr. John, the Night Tripper. They were great pals. And I, I loved, I loved Kimball. He um, said to me uh, at the end of uh, our first or second meeting when we were discussing what I wanted photographically out of this thing, he said to me with that accent, he says, Matthew, I know what you want. You want that chrome and hot lipstick look. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so to kind of wind down here a little bit, the, the other thing that's incredibly notable about Billie Jean is the soundtrack. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted to ask about that. I wondered how much of that was you and how much of that was studio mandated. And because you have Pat Benatar, you have Billy Idol. Like, where did that come from? Uh, it was always, uh, I, I was very, I was listening to a lot of that music then and figuring out with my editor, Cynthia Scheid, of what would be the most energizing tracks. And so the most of that, uh, music usage came from me. Okay. It went down fine. Uh, the Pat Benatar thing was the studio had reached out. And when I was brought in on it, I liked the use of that song so it was not a not one of these <laughs> unhappy interactions with them uh it was fine but okay. uh, i remember um after the fact that i and i never met her of course pat benatar that she hated the movie and used to say that um to her public oh you have a cat there too yeah i didn't know that either until we actually recorded uh our main episode is that one of the other hosts on the show was like did you know Pat Benatar hates fucking Invincible? And I was like, really? That's a that's a thing that she doesn't like? And she's like, he's like, yeah, she hates that song. I'm like, that song's awesome. I don't get it. <laughs> you know, it's 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 uh, one of the strangest things about this is that you run across things like that and you feel so helpless. I it's totally out of my control. But yeah. I think I agree. It works like crazy. Works very yeah. well. 
So. And the way that it's even incorporated into like the, the like the actual like score of the movie too, like that moment where Billy Jean, you know, the the camera pushes across Lloyd's pool, and Billy Jean emerges for the first time with her uh, short hair, yeah, short hair, her Joan of Arc hair, let's say, and it's like it's just such an incredible moment that like you sit there and you're like, you don't like that. Okay. I guess. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so not to, not to end this conversation on possible, uh, a possible downer note, but what happened to the movie upon release? Because it didn't do particularly well. Mm-hmm. Like, like, and that always shocked me that again, and it's still, frankly relegated to cult status um and i just wondered like what what happened the um i think the aftershocks of um the production where um goober peters had turned against the film vigorously vigorously um they uh they they were very um difficult yeah. And so they were not interested in any support, and they didn't. They they weren't interested in the distribution and the pro. They didn't, you know, as the producers who normally would be very very much involved with making sure that the studio gave it the attention it deserved and where it was placed in terms of a, of marketing. And um, it uh, it's a little bit like what happened with the Corvette Summer, which the original title of which was Stingray. And we found out uh, via one of our mixers on that film. Oh, have you boys seen the paper? Your your movie's now being called Corvette Summer and is going to be re- platform released regionally as summer programming. And like, you know, we, we didn't know, you know. And and so, uh, um, as part of that uh, sort of permanent um, pre-adolescent that I think I was for so many years, I was so excited about movie storytelling and the whole medium and the fun of putting it together and the actors and let's go make a movie that the the facts of life with regard to business promotion you know advertising budget all the all those things that i knew nothing about them and and uh i i under, i look back on it now and i see in in both instances um that uh there was a big machine at work here and we were being slotted by other powers. I, uh, I, I certainly would not, I don't think I would have had any influence whatsoever on in either case as to the fate of the film with regard to how it was, how it was, it was offered. That's also true of Dragon Slayer. Sure. Dragon, Dragon Slayer. Um, we had a preview. I went, um, down near, um, somewhere in San Jose. I went, my wife and I went with uh, George and Hal. A number of us went to this studio preview of Dragon Slayer, at the end of which it got a standing ovation. It was like a, a, a dream of a, a preview. And George turned and said, wow, it's a hit. Wow, he was, George was just, <laughs> we, we were thrilled. But the head of distribution, who was not there, he, he um, didn't like the movie didn't like the title Dragon Slayer, you know, and he basically was fixated on uh, Raiders, which was coming out two weeks after us from Paramount. Mm-hmm. And he just, through that same kind of easily parceling out his summer, he's like little, little, um, um, you know, on a board game, putting his little chips out there. He wasn't really looking for any great result out of Dragon Slayer. They were no one looking for any kind of great result out of Corvette Summer. And certainly after the damage that was done during the production of uh, Billy Jean, they were more than happy to just, you know, let's move on. You know, where there was a, uh, the, the, there was absolutely no mesh of sensibilities between me and John Peters, <laughs> put it mildly, just zero. And so it, it, you know, it, it was on to the next. So, yeah. um, the fact that, um, it prefigures so many of the issues of today and has been uh, at least uh, here and there among people who are interested in American film, that it can have uh, its little footnote, you know, flashing down there is very gratifying because that's, um, 
what it was about. That really, and I don't, I really don't know if it was. Uh, I can't. I'm not here to say that. Oh, it was before its time, and and it was indigestible. I don't know. How old were you? You you saw, you didn't see it then. How old were you when you saw it? Well, I was in my early 30s, uh, 31. Mm-hmm. I want to say when I first saw it um, here in Texas. But it, I I'll be the one to sit here and say. Yes, it was before its time because the way that I even described it, my two co-hosts had never seen the movie before. And when I introduced it to them as I go, it's you got to give it a second. But the one way I'm going to introduce this to you is that this feels like the first Me Too movie. Mm-hmm. Like this is a me, the Me Too movie, like 35 years before Me Too even occurred. You know, is that it's the first one to question the idea of like women owning their own agency and uh, becoming icons and reckoning with their with sexuality and what that means and how that can be exploited. And like it's incredible to me that the movie has not been remade or at least approached to be. Now, granted, I don't know if I would want to watch a remake of Billie Jean because the I think Billie Jean works so well because of someone's dog is going crazy outside but um i think it works so well because it's made uh, in the mid 80s you don't have twitter you don't have any other form of social media because i believe that if billy jean was made today it would almost feel trite to a certain degree because like fair is fair would become a hashtag you know it wouldn't become a rallying cry for like real people who like come out and like join this icon as she's in the streets actually uh motivating individuals like i feel like there's a way that this movie goes wrong in like a modern remake so maybe the trappings of its time period actually uh, enhance its power let's say um but like yeah i i think you're not wrong in saying that it was ahead of its time or that it was um, kind of incredibly forward thinking, especially for, let's say, the genre that it exists in, you know, because the teen movie at the time was a lot of like, you know, it was John Hughes. It was here's these white suburban fantasies that really don't address, they kind of superficially address class and they certainly don't address race or anything in those movies, but that's a whole other essay to get on another day. But that's what makes Billie Jean to me so special is that it does all of these things, but it does it in a way that's like, you want to watch it to be entertained? You can be entertained. You want to watch it and like come away and think for the next week about these things that are happening still in our world today? You can do that. So, and that's what makes it a great film. The, the, um, uh, I, 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 when I'm going to find, I, I will not forget, I'm going to find this article and send it to you. And at the time of when I, when I was sent that article, I went and discovered that the movie had developed this following among particularly, uh, 14, 15 year old girls who saw it at that age. And they identified so strongly with her and the issues of it. And that was the um, first hint I had that the movie could have um, that resonance and maybe that it was before its time. And you're reluctant to fall back on a cliche like that if you're the filmmaker because it sounds a little self-serving. But um, so I will leave that to uh, you <laughs> to say. But I, there, 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 the fact that she's uncompromising and does not look to the character of Lloyd to save her or to her brother, she is uh, a, a figure of um, uh, independence. It discovers that independence in, her, in herself. Uh, that um, uh, that's really the, the the core of the film emotionally. And so um, I'm I'm and the fact that you saw it uh, you know much more recently at age 30 and responded to is also a, a first for me to hear. I I have to tell you that. Um, uh, I, I don't live in LA and I, so I'm a little bit out of the, the swim with regard to my own work, but the, the movie that gets far more attention today in terms of cult status is Dragon Slayer. Yeah. Because of Game of Thrones, I think, and, and the fact that there's an overlap 
and the Tolkien movies too. Peter Jackson was a Dragon Slayer fan, and so that I, I, I get I get queries about that movie and have done for a number of years. This movie, your letter to um, uh, Lou Pitt's office about it was a big surprise because it's been almost 10 years since that other article came out. And so uh, knowing I had to speak to you today, I went and I looked at a few minutes of the movie and then I went on and I saw that it's ongoing and maybe it's even growing for all I know that the movie has a meaning today because of Me Too. Uh, and and uh, so who knows? Um, <laughs> God, you're, I, I, it never occurred to me that somebody might contemplate remaking it, but I entirely agree remaking it would not have anywhere near, it would seem to be almost pandering to remake yeah. it. Yeah, that would be the problem with it is that it's it's the way that, and again, this is a totally different, this is a topic for a whole other discussion, but it's the way that entertainment now is geared towards the issue as opposed to the issue arising organically uh, out of the entertainment, which again is why I think Billie Jean works so well is that everything feels organic. Mm -hmm. It's not... It's not playing to the choir, let's say. It is the choir. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll conclude by uh, referring once more to my beloved Walter Bernstein, um, who uh, had really drummed it into me uh, that the source always is character. If you can, if you can get the story to emerge from vivid characters and their needs and their and their actions then you you can just forget about the the issues will they'll they will sort of take care of themselves insofar as they are lurking in a social context but if the characters are vivid enough and you invest in them and you are and you 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 forget where you are because you're at their side you're seeing the world through their eyes even or even especially the antagonists the bad guys right if they have their position too emotionally, like that's true of the way um, even a brute like Mr. Pyatt and his son, you know, they have their own self-pity and their own view of these events. And, and so, so all of those elements are really what I put at play in all my movies. I, I, I always try to, to make the characters three-dimensional and it, has, it sounds like a cliche, but it has a very, very concrete meaning to me. And so that's how... I look at the whole question of currency and, and uh, uh, addressing today's problems. It cannot start with the idea of sending a message, you know, Western Union, all that stuff. You really want to start with, are these characters worth your time? Are they, are they, are they um, uh, sharp enough and, and unusual enough to, hold a, uh, to, to, to take hold of your, of your attention and to mean something to you so you don't forget them? Yeah. It's that's a good way to to really put it. It reminds me of something that I spoke to Larry Cohen uh, shortly before he passed on, uh, unfortunately. Um, and he told me he was a guy who was always known for how subversive and his films were and how he would package things inside of, you know, the stuff or cue the winged serpent and movies that, again, ostensibly seem like schlocky B movies, but his thing was always he, he he told me he was like i never wanted to make message movies but if you could smuggle it in that's part of the <laughs> yeah it has a way of they, they these things smuggle themselves in i mean uh, even drag i don't we i think we've got if you look at drag Slayer, it's come up in drag Slayer with regard to the caitlin clark role adopting the the male role etc 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 but again that's a whole other topic but it's really been uh, lovely talking to you, especially since you hold the movie in such high regard and you've done a lot of thinking about it. And you made me go back and think about it, too. And, well, and, I'm uh, glad. <laughs> yeah, no, no, it's, it's no, I'm, I'm not kidding. This uh, is quite a surprise. Um, you know, this, this is... Uh, I, I, let me just ask you, because um, this is such a... This is, Maybe I, I've been contacted um, recently about uh, Dragon Slayer on several different fronts. Uh, about two months ago, for the first time ever, I began getting mail here. In my, I live in a small town with a post office and the post office box. But I suddenly 
got a bunch of letters in the mail addressed to my street address. Okay. From autograph seekers. They were all about close encounters. They were including lobby cards. And you know, Are you aware of any forum online or fan thing about Dragon Slayer that would have revealed such a thing, or are you not? <laughs> Clearly not. Uh, that's not... Yeah, that's not really mine. Like, I like Dragon Slayer, I love, but I love uh, Billie Jean and I love Corvette Summer. That's no slight against Dragon Slayer. No, 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 no. no I'm just wondering because of uh, the online thing. I don't, I don't, I don't read up enough about it and, 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 you know, what's going on in the, in the online conversations about the 80s and the 90s and, the, you know, and whatever. But it was so odd that it's as if somebody published something and I suddenly got all these things to the same my, my street address is pretty obscure for people to somehow know that in context of dragon. I'm not talking about your <laughs> affection. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's it's sort of what you kind of like what you said at the, the top of our discussion um, of when I brought up, you know, THX 1138 is that the Internet, man, if it wants something to exist, it's going to manifest it itself. So yeah. th that's probably the easiest explanation. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Jacob, it was really fun talking to you. I'm, I'm, I'm very glad you did this and uh, that we can make it happen. Well, thank you. I'm glad that you could take the time out and, you know, tell us all these stories because this has been great. Again, thank you, uh, Matthew. It's been great. But thank you above all for just making the movie because <laughs> it's a great movie. It was not an unalloyed pleasure, but I'm glad I did. Yeah, <laughs> all right. Well, you take care of yourself. Okay. okay you too. Bye bye. Yes. Yeah, stay healthy. Bye bye.